Uh, If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to finish this chapter today, which is just five verses, verses 38 down to 42. While you get yourself situated, I want to paint a picture of something like a dynamic that exists in uh, my, my wife and I's marriage as it relates to hosting people. So like on the 4th of July, we had a bunch of people over, um, some friends and some folks in our small group and whatnot. And whenever we host like that, Melody and I, we do all the you know, the, the prep work to make your house look like nobody's ever lived in it before so that people can come over and hang out. And then when they arrive, Melody understands that the purpose of hosting people is to actually just enjoy being with people. And so she does that. While meanwhile, I just am constantly trying to figure out like, what's the next thing? What do we need to set up? What needs to be cleaned up? Like, let's, I'm like running around, rushing around, trying to like, I feel like, you know, somebody's got to make the evening go here, you know? Um, and that dynamic exists for us, whether it's just like one couple coming over for dinner or we're hosting a, a large number of people. You might resonate with one side of that or the other. I want you to hold that sort of in your mind. We're going to get kind of a spiritual picture of that, if you will, as it relates to relating to Jesus. And we're going to get it through a passage that's pretty familiar. It's about two women, Mary and Martha, while they're hosting Jesus at their house one day. And so um, my, my goal here is for us to get Mary and Martha kind of clearly into focus and then be able to understand what it is to live in relationship with Jesus and actually enjoy relationship with Jesus. Let me do a real quick recap of how it is that we get to this spot in the Gospel of Luke. Because in Luke chapter 10, particularly here at the end, the, the Gospel writer Luke is doing something very intentional by putting these, these two accounts back to back, the parable of the Good Samaritan and this account at Mary and Martha's house. So big picture in Luke, if you remember sort of our distinctions, Luke 1.1 to 4.15 is all about the presentation of Jesus, his, the announcement of his birth, his actual birth, the presentation of him at the temple, his temptation out in the wilderness. This is Jesus, the Messiah, who has come to forgive the sins of the world. That's the first opening sort of act in the Gospel of Luke. Then in 4.16, all the way toward the end of chapter 9, you get the second chunk, which is Jesus' early ministry. It all takes place up in a region called Galilee. And it's all about who is this Messiah? What's his ministry like? What does he come to do? Um, Creation, angels, demons, humans are testifying to the fact that this is the Son of God. And then in 9.51... There's this big transition statement that Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem and it's bracketed by two statements from Jesus predicting his death, that he's going to suffer at the hands of men. He will die, be resurrected on the third day. That brackets Jesus's statement that our Luke statement that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And that travel narrative starts in 951 and it goes basically through chapter 19 in the gospel of Luke. And what happens after that is that Jesus makes a statement to his disciples about what it really means to follow him. What is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? Then in the start of chapter uh, 10, 
Jesus sends his disciples out, not just the 12 apostles, but 72 of his followers, disciples. He sends them out in pairs to all of the towns that he's about to go into, having them proclaim the good news of the gospel and let people know that Jesus is coming. Then there's some reporting about how that all went down. Then there's the conversation between Jesus and a lawyer that has the parable of the good Samaritan inside of it. There's this expert in the law who wants to know what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me, what do you need to do? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, bingo, go and do that. Totally impossible. He, he cannot do that. And inside of that conversation is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then we arrive at this passage of Mary and Martha hosting Jesus at their house. And so if you've got it there in front of you, Jesus is going to tell us about the necessary thing when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. So I'm gonna read Luke 10, 38 to 42. If you've got it open, just follow along with me. It says this. While they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, your spirit here among us this morning would help us to remove any distractions or just sort of the clutter that might be in our heart and in our minds as we come in here this morning, God, so that we can focus on the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done on our behalf so that we can see his goodness and his kindness and his gentleness, God, so that we can see from your word what this one necessary thing is when it comes to walking in relationship with him. God, I pray that you'd help us to just set this time aside in our hearts and in our minds. I mean, physically we're here, but help us to really set it apart this morning that we might dedicate some time to you of being in the presence of the body of Christ and glorying in the gospel alongside one another, whether that's in song or from your word, whether it's in conversation and interaction. God, help us to mark this time off, to really dedicate time with the body of Christ, with our brothers and sisters, that we might celebrate the gospel together, be encouraged by your word and by the presence of your spirit here among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna give you the main point this morning and it comes right out of what Jesus has says at the end of this passage and it's this, that a necessary aspect of following Jesus is learning to rest in Jesus. What's this one necessary thing? Well, it's all about resting in Jesus. Here's how we're gonna work with this. I, I wanna start by bringing something forward in the passage that would have been very evident to a first century reader of the Gospel of Luke, but is lost on us a little bit because our cultural surrounding is so different than theirs. I wanna bring that out first. Then I wanna get Mary and Martha sort of in really clear focus, draw last week and this week all together, and then get practical about what it means to rest in Jesus. There's an aspect of this passage, a piece of it, that would have just jumped off the page to one of Luke's contemporary first century Jewish readers that's hard for us to see. The reason it's hard for us to see is that because the cultural norms of male and female in 2021 America are wildly different 
than the setting in which Jesus ministered and the setting in which Luke wrote. The first two verses of this would have not just sort of piqued a first century reader's interest. They would have been semi-explosive to have read in the first century. The reason being, the shared understanding at that time of how male and female related to one another was very different. And what Luke is doing is he's showing how Jesus and his method of interacting with women is countercultural to what anything else would have been like in the first century. Rebecca McLaughlin, who's an author and a scholar, she says it this way. If we could read the gospels through first century eyes, Jesus's treatment of women would knock us to our knees. Whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by menstrual blood, whether married or single, sick, disabled, or even dead, Jesus made time for women and treated them with care and respect. In Luke's gospel, women are often compared with men. And when there is a contrast, the women come out looking better. Look back at verse 38 with me. While they were traveling, he entered a village. And a woman, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. That sounds pretty normal to us. It would have been a little bit surprising to a first century reader. And the reason for that is because property was associated with a man. That's why Jesus goes to Zacchaeus's house. Not only would the house have been the man's, but the women present at the house were also part of the property. So the wife any of his daughters, any servants that lived there. It was all property. And if you were going to go to someone's house, you designated that house by the man who owned it. So for Luke to write in verse 38 that Martha welcomes Jesus into her house, Martha's house, a first century Jewish reader would have said, huh? What do you mean her house? She can't own a house. Her husband owns a house. Then there's the next verse, which would have been even more explosive. 39, she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Two things about that. Number one, Mary is in the room with Jesus. Again, that's not weird to us at all. Sure, they've got a guest over. Okay, we can quibble about whose house gets the designation. But of course, she's in the room with Jesus. Not at this time, she wasn't. If you were having a mixed company gathering, whether at your house or at the temple or at a synagogue or at any public place, the women went into one room and the men went into another you went to worship at the temple, the women could go into one place, the men could go into another. You sat down at synagogue one day, the women occupied one side, the men occupied another. We didn't sit in little family pods where the husband's got his wife or his arm around his wife and they're sharing a Bible together. Didn't function that way. It was separate. And so here's Luke telling you that Mary is not only present in and out of the room because women took care of hospitality in the house, but she's actually just lingering in the room with Jesus? No, she's not. She can't do that. She's not allowed to do that. But looking a little deeper helps us see something else. The wording here is very intentional and very important. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. In our day, 
When we think about someone teaching, whether in a church like right now or in a classroom in college lecture hall or your first grade child's classroom, we picture a teacher standing at the front of a room and those who are listening or learning seated in desks or in chairs like this. That's not exactly how it worked in Jesus's time of ministry. A rabbi would sit when they taught. That's why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes into Nazareth and the synagogue there, we're told that he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, he rolls it up, hands it to the attendant, and then he sits down. It's not because he's done, it's because now it's time to teach. And he gives a one-sentence sermon. The prophecy which you have heard has been fulfilled before your eyes. That was the whole sermon. He sat down to give it. That's how teaching worked. And the disciples of that rabbi or that teacher would sit at his feet, literally like gathered around in front of him, either sitting or lounging right there in front. And so to sit at someone's feet would be to be a disciple of that rabbi. What is Mary doing? What did Luke just tell you? She's in the room with Jesus and she sat at his feet and listened to him. What Luke has just identified for you is that Mary is a disciple of Jesus. At that point, a person listening to this, if it were being read out loud in a a synagogue somewhere with a group of Jewish individuals, or if they somehow got access to this scroll, they would have either rolled it up or closed it and said, nope, none of this can happen. This is not how it works. It's not Martha's house. She can't own a house. Mary can't be sitting there in the room with Jesus. That's not how we do this. Mary definitely cannot be a disciple because only men can be the disciples of a rabbi because only men can be rabbis. This is completely impossible. See what Luke is doing though. So before I make a couple observations, like zoom out with me and take a bigger look at last week's passage with the parable of the Good Samaritan and this week's passage of Mary and Martha. I mentioned when we started this series in the Gospel of Luke, way back in November, that one of the things that Luke makes clear, it's a theme throughout his Gospel, is that the work of Jesus is for all people. Now, that certainly means all nations, but it also means all types of people. What has Luke just positioned back to back for us? Well, there's a conversation with an expert in the law, and in the middle of that conversation, Jesus gives a parable. Who was the hero of the parable? A Samaritan. Okay, you're a Jewish listener. The Samaritan is the hero. You say, not possible, scum of the earth. They don't get to be the hero. This is not for them. This is, Jesus is Jewish. This is for us. And if they made it beyond that, because if they could stomach getting past that parable, okay, it's just a story. Jesus is not being serious. Now there's a woman and she's a disciple Like she gets to be a follower of Jesus and Luke intentionally has smashed those back to back. Tack on the beginning of chapter 10 then. Jesus takes his 72 disciples and he sends them out in pairs into all of the towns. This message and work that Jesus is doing is for all people. Everyone gets to hear the message of the kingdom of God. Even your enemies, Jewish people, and even the overlooked members of our society like women. I am headed to the cross. I've set my face there. I'm going to be betrayed by 
the hands of men. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm headed to the cross, and I'm headed to the cross for all these people that you hate. I'm headed to the cross for all the people of all the nations, and I'm headed to the cross for the people that you overlook like women. Luke's purpose in the arrangement of the gospel of Luke is chronological. This is what happened, but it's also theological. And chapter 10 is this theological picture of the fact that what Jesus is headed to the cross to do, Luke 9, 51, is for everybody. And it's an incredible picture when you're willing to step back and look at the whole thing. We want our passages of scripture, like when there's a heading in our Bible, to be these nice, tidy little compartments where I read this one little section and there's three application points, one theological thing, I take it away and it exists in isolation. That's not how it was written. It's written as one long narrative and Luke sets it up intentionally. This is for all people. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where he's going to secure salvation on the cross for all the nations, for the enemies of the Jews, for the often overlooked members of society. That's the good news of the gospel. Now I want to make a couple of quick observations specifically about Mary and Martha and the fact that verses 38 and 39 would have been so revolutionary to a Jewish listener. Now I'm going to make these observations in 2021 in America And for some of you, you're going to think, duh, you're saying things that are like readily apparent. You don't need to give sermon time to this. For some of you, you might think, I'm thankful that you're willing to vocalize this because it's helpful for me to hear this. But the reason I'm doing it is because even though this is not the main part of the passage, it would have been very, very noticeable to a first century reader. And so it needs to be noticeable to us too. And so the first of those observations is this, that resting in Jesus is for women. Like women, that is for you. And we sit here in 2021 and we're like, duh, Tim, women can be followers of Jesus. Why are you making a big deal out of this? Well, the circumstances might be different, but the truth is just the same. Women, Jesus knows that resting in anything else is ultimately poisonous and toxic to your soul. You try to anchor your identity in the success of your marriage and that is toxic to your soul. You try to anchor your identity in your parenting or your child raising, that is poisonous to your soul. You try to anchor your identity and rest yourself in your career or your homemaking or your relationships or anything else. That's poison to your soul. Fullness of life is in Jesus. You want to rest and really find rest for your soul today. It's in one thing, Jesus, and nowhere else. The other thing that this passage would have pointed out along these lines that would have been remarkable for first century, second century readers and also is worth bringing out for us is that Jesus is not afraid of women. He's not keeping women at arm's length. He does not view women as a threat or as an object that might make him stumble. He longs for women to find rest in him and he went to the cross for it. There is eternal rest, temporal rest, and your soul at rest continually kind of life available in Jesus. And on the way to the cross, he invited women into following him. And on this side of the cross, women, he's doing the same. Resting in Jesus is for you. Here's the second one. Women, discipleship is for you. 
The process of discipleship is for you. And that means this, that deep, weighty, meaningful, heady conversations about the deep things of God and the wonders that are buried in his word, that's for you. That's not just for men. Mary is seated at Jesus' feet, listening to what he has to say. Women, you are not just placeholders in certain service roles within the life of the church. Don't get me wrong, those service roles are wonderful. And if we're being totally honest, women, you fill them joyfully and humbly and graciously, and you do so in larger number and in larger percentage than men. And the local church around the country is grateful for that. But Jesus is calling you into more than just placeholding in service roles. He's calling you into deep relationship with him and with others. He's inviting you into meaningful, life-transforming, nations-reaching discipleship. He's brought you into his kingdom, and now he wants to build that kingdom through you. Discipleship is for you. Again, you say, Tim, it's 2021. You're just stating the obvious. Maybe, but it definitely wasn't obvious in this day and age, so much so that Luke made sure to bring it out so that his readers would see it. And if we're being completely honest, the church's working out of this within its life here in America is a mixed bag when it comes to how we treat these things and women within the life of the church. And so it's worth saying, even in 2021, I wanna make one more observation, but men, this one is for you. Men, we need to pattern our attitudes about women off of Jesus's attitude toward women. To do anything less than that is unbiblical. Often, the way we think about women, whether their roles within the church or particularly their relationship to men, We base that more on conservative worldly ideas about gender stereotypes than we do about the biblical picture of manhood, womanhood, or the biblical model of Jesus. And at times, that can give way to sinful attitudes toward women or to the sinful treatment of women. So I want to offer this. It would be a profitable exercise for every man in this church, regardless of your age, to read through the Gospels. Just pick one, sit down, and read it in large chunks over the course of a couple of days and ask yourself this question. How does Jesus treat the women that he interacts with and do I do likewise? The same amount of respect, the same amount of honor, the same care, the same gentleness. Is that how we treat women? Now hear me say this again. This aspect is not the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is that a necessary aspect of following Jesus is learning to rest in Jesus. But we can't miss the fact that Luke is doing something intentional here, both in these five verses and in the larger picture of Luke chapter 10. Let me go back to the passage. Read it with me again, start to finish, starting in verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. 
Now let's get Martha and Mary into focus. Start with Martha. The general tenor of the passage lets you know that Martha is distracted, she's worried, she seems upset and frustrated, she seems kind of flustered and kind of tired and fatigued. I want to think about Martha two ways. The first way I want to do this is kind of the cold, logical calculus of the whole thing. She has the Son of God right there in her home. And it seems as though she would rather be doing or she feels a kind of heavy obligation to be doing the cleaning and the hosting rather than just marveling at the fact that the Son of God is present within her home. This is a once in a history opportunity and she is completely missing it. Not to mention the fact that in the middle of the whole deal, she literally scolds Jesus, which is kind of like this terrifying, amazing, hilarious little moment. It's like in the middle of all the serving, she pops one hand on her hip, waves the spatula, and says, Jesus, tell my sister to do something. How many of you are youngest in your family? Like you were the baby in the family. I was the baby in the family. Okay. Mary, I'm speculating, seems like the youngest in the family. Why? Youngest in the family just assume that somebody else is going to take care of stuff. Like, There's a dishes fairy that just arrives and takes care of the dishes. I just sit here and stuff happens around me. I'm the baby in a family. I just sat there and Sarah took care of stuff. You sit there long enough, mom will get mad. I can outweigh Sarah. She's a firstborn. She feels like she has to do things. Martha and Mary. And Martha is so upset about this that rather than talk to Mary about it, she scolds Jesus about it. Let's be a little, let's try to be like a little more empathetic toward Martha in this. The son of God is in her house. In this culture at this time, she has spent her entire life understanding that you host and serve and you do your role as a woman a particular way. So you bet your life that when the son of God walked into her house, she wanted to get that hosting engagement right. Like every aspect of it, that the son of God who just showed up at my house is going to feel welcomed and hosted like he never has before. And not only that, you're human. And you're very, very new to following this Jesus guy because honestly, he hasn't really been around all of that long. And so you're learning what it means to be a follower of his. And Jesus is so wonderful and he's so kind and gracious and loving that he's willing to show us where we still need to grow. Throughout all of Jesus' ministry, he's always capitalizing on the moment in order to dig into the hearts of his followers and move them deeper into relationship with him. In fact, he's willing to do that with everyone, his disciples, like the apostles, the larger group of disciples, the crowd that follows him, even the Pharisees that oppose him. Every opportunity he gets, he's shifting away from just like the surface behavior down to the deep things of the heart in order to say, this is how you follow me. This is what it means to be in relationship with me. And he's doing that with Martha. Martha's trying to do a good thing. And Jesus sees that and he says, there's something even better available for you, Martha. And that's when our attention shifts to Mary. Now, Mary in the story seems calm and content and relaxed. She's sitting there listening to Jesus. She's learning. She's engaged with him. Mary is engaged in a discipleship process with Jesus as well. It's just that hers is in a different spot here. 
It's in a different place in this moment than Martha's, and that's okay because the point of the passage, like the point of any biblical passage, is not to be more like Mary or more like Martha. The point of the passage is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Notice verse 41. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus did not say, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Be more like your sister. That's not what it says. And if I were to stand up here and say, you know what the point of this passage is? The point of this passage is for us all to be like Mary. We would get to heaven and find Mary, and Mary would be like, you didn't see what happened 10 minutes later. You don't want to be like me. The point of the passage is about Jesus. The point of the passage is not, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to borrow from the lawman? Oh, that's easy. Just serve like Martha or just sit like Mary. That's not the point. And if I tell you that that's the point, I'm putting a burden upon you that will drag you straight to hell. Because the answer is not to do anything. Jesus makes the point about himself. Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary's made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Mary's, or Martha's worried and upset. The literal translation of that phrase would be to say that she's carried away by many things. Carried away from what? She's carried away from Jesus. Mary, we're told, has chosen the necessary thing. Literally, again, she's chosen the meaty portion and it won't be taken away from her. What has Mary chosen that Martha hasn't? She's chosen to rest with Jesus, to rest in Christ. The the fancy biblical churchy word there would be that she has chosen to abide in Christ. That word abide literally means to stay or continue, to persevere, endure, to last, or to remain. This account in Luke provides a flesh and blood picture of an idea that the New Testament talks about extensively. You can catch this theme of abiding in Jesus in the book of Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1 John, 2 John, even the book of Revelation. The most popular passage on the topic of abiding with Christ comes right from the mouth of Jesus and it's recorded in John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and withers. How does Jesus say that a follower of his bears much fruit? Is it predominantly through the American lens of hustling and grinding and working hard? No, it's through abiding in him, resting, persevering, staying, continuing, enduring in Christ. Put it together with last week, the expert in the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer to that question is nothing. You cannot possibly do enough to inherit eternal life based on your own merit. That's an entirely hopeless pursuit. Jesus is the one who has loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength, and he's loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. And your only hope of inheriting eternal life comes through receiving it through what Jesus has done on your behalf. And if that's how you receive it, now what does it look like to be his follower? Good news. You see it in this passage. What's the one necessary thing? 
It's remaining in Jesus. A follower of Jesus begins in Christ and then remains in Christ. That is the necessary thing, the meaty portion, the thing that Jesus is never going to take away from one of his people. A necessary aspect of following Jesus is learning to rest in Jesus. Jesus longs to take plenty of things away from you. By that, I mean your sin, distractions, the idols of your heart, the false identities that you try to stake on something else. He longs to lovingly with a scalpel dig in and take those things away. But what's the one thing he's never taken away from you? Resting in him. That's the necessary thing. And so what does that look like? I want to end with five kind of quick statements here. Resting in Jesus does not mean always being physically at rest. The illogical and incorrect extreme of this passage would be to say, okay, I need to just rest in Jesus. That's what following him means. So I'm gonna lock myself in a room or go hide out in a cave somewhere and just think happy thoughts about Jesus all the time. That is both inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament and completely incompatible with the commands of Christ as it relates to our service and work on his behalf as motivated by the gospel. And we know that it's just experientially untrue. We all know that it's possible to do plenty of physical resting while simultaneously not doing a lick of spiritual abiding. You can rest, let your body rest, and not be abiding in Christ just as easily as you can work like Martha and not be abiding in Christ. When Melody and I, a number of years ago, were first trying to get used to the process of Sabbathing on Saturdays for us, I got really good really fast at just resting, like physically resting, but the Bible has a word for laziness that's not abiding in Christ. That word is sloth. I can sloth like no other. But that is sinful. Proverbs has plenty to say about slothliness. Abiding in Christ is not just being physically at rest. It's learning to really let your heart rest in Jesus. And so that means that the next statement is true, that resting in Jesus allows us to truly take joy in physical rest. This one is for the kind of like worker bees among us. You know who you are. You're the people who have a hard time sitting still. You just need a project or something to do. You need to like get up and move around and you just always have to have something in front of you all the time. When you learn to really let your soul rest in Jesus, it allows you to take joy in physically resting. Resting in Jesus requires taking a firm grasp on the fact that Jesus has accomplished all the work on your behalf. And that means you don't have to produce anything in order to prove your worth to him. You don't have to accomplish anything in order to earn his love. You don't need another trophy or pat on the back in order for him to think highly of you. You can just rest. And there's joy in it. Resting in Jesus allows us to take joy in physical rest because it's a reminder for us that I am not the one who ultimately makes everything go. I'm not the one who's holding the world up right now. I'm not even the one who's moving forward all of the plans and purposes that the sovereign God of the universe has for my life. He is. 
And I can take a break every once in a while and remind myself that it was never about me making it all happen anyway because he is sovereign and providential and he will guide all of human history and eternity toward his purposes and also my life specifically. And that means I can rest and find joy in that. It also means that this is true, that resting in Jesus is not guaranteed in our service to Jesus. This comes right out of the passage. This is Martha. Talk to any pastor or full-time ministry worker or even anyone who serves consistently in any capacity here at this church, and they will tell you this tale, that you can be doing all sorts of stuff for Jesus and yet not be abiding in him. Oh, sure, you can be doing lots of good service to Jesus. In fact, you can be doing lots of good service to Jesus that is explicitly and obviously obedient to the word, and yet your heart be far from him in the middle of the service. And to you, Jesus would want to say, there's something better available. The problem's not the service. It doesn't mean that you just need to stop doing things for the sake of of the kingdom of God and for the glory of God and in service to Jesus. It's that your heart needs to learn to rest in Jesus while you do them. Those are two very different things. You might need that gentle, loving encouragement that Martha got, that you're being carried away by many things, some of them in service to Jesus, but you might be missing the main thing, the necessary thing in the middle of it all. It's possible to become a bitter servant of Jesus. That in the middle of doing something that God has commanded us to do, that's a good thing for us to be doing, you stop, you throw a hand on your hip, you wave the spatula in the air, and you say, Jesus, look at all these lazy people. Don't you see me serving and making this church go? What about all these folks? And Jesus says, you're missing the main thing. I love your service to me, but there's something better. I want your heart to find rest in me. I want to be intentional here, but also gentle with a very specific kind of application. It's easy in suburban American culture to get very carried away by all of the activities and the things that we have on our schedules and our calendars. So much so that like you got involved in fill in the blank activity and all of a sudden that activity is like the tail that's wagging the dog. It just overruns your life. And in a career here of ministry, both as a youth pastor and now in this particular role. I've had a lot of conversations with families who, recognizing that that's the reality in their life, make the kind of like spiritual churchy statement that like, oh, well, that particular activity, that's where, that's like our mission field. We engage with people for the sake of the gospel. That's where we're around lost people, to which I think to myself. So at 8 a.m., on like the eighth Sunday morning in a row where you've decided to skip church, something that God has explicitly commanded so that you can be at that activity, evangelizing, which is something that God commanded, but not necessarily at that thing, where you've lugged all the chairs and everything out there and you've got your coffee in one hand and the team is like down by four and the ref makes a call that you don't agree with and you yell along with everybody else some colorful names about that referee and what you think about the job that he's doing. You're, you're evangelizing? Like, did you, are you abiding in Christ there? Are you resting in him in that place? And that activity or that thing could be anything, like fill in the blank. And I don't know your heart. I can't see that. And it's not for me to judge, but I guarantee you 
that Jesus, even in the middle of doing things that are very, very good on his behalf, if he knows that your heart is very distant from him, he would want to kind of lovingly hold your hands and say, there's something better. You can learn to rest in me in this place. And that means that resting in Jesus is about the orientation of your heart in all things. Resting in Jesus is a posture of your heart more so than it's about the activity level of your body. You can be wildly busy while absolutely abiding in Christ. You can also be completely sedentary while absolutely not abiding in Christ. The difference lies not in your activity level or even necessarily the nature of the activity, but in your heart's orientation. Here with Mary and Martha, we can see the activity level difference, but Jesus, as he always does, makes it entirely about the heart. Martha's heart is carried away by many things. Mary's heart is at rest doing the necessary thing. And so you say to yourself, how do I actually orient my heart? How do I get my heart into the posture whereby I can rest in Jesus no matter what's going on? And the answer to that is the same answer that I give to most everything from this place, regardless of the topic, and that is by setting your mind on Jesus and the gospel. Resting in Jesus begins by setting your heart on Jesus. Fix your heart on him. To borrow the words of the famous hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wondrous face, and then don't look away. Sure, do all sorts of stuff. Give your life to serving Jesus. Allow all that you do to be an extravagant overflow of his love and of his gospel to his glory for all of your days until the day you go and be with him. But don't ever look away. Sit at his feet at all times. Bury your heart deeply into his and then fight to keep it there. And when it drifts, allow the gospel and the goodness of Jesus to be what brings you back. Throughout Christian history, people have gotten together at different times and they've put together things called catechisms, which are basically just large documents that are usually questions and answers that help us memorize truths of scripture. There's a catechism called the, West, the Westminster Catechism. There's a long version and a short version. And the first question in the short version says this, what is the chief end of man or humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we think about the forever part of that, we often think about eternity. Like, oh, to glorify God and then to enjoy him for all of eternity. God would want to take your hands and hold them and say, the enjoyment can start now. Like, that's the necessary thing. Rest in me. Find peace in me. Regardless of what's on your calendar or where you're going or what you're doing, you can begin the enjoyment now, in all things, at all times. Martha, Martha, you're carried away by many things, but one thing is necessary. Rest. Rest in me. Bury your heart in the goodness of Jesus, in the glory of the gospel, and then just keep it there no matter what you're doing. And when you get distracted or you feel like you're being carried away by many things, Pause for a second. Remind yourself of the beauty of the gospel and get back to resting. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.
I want to I want to end where I started. So the we get done hosting on the fourth of July and everybody leaves our house kind of late on that evening and I slump into the couch exhausted and Melody is like standing in our living room and she's like, That was awesome. I'm like, wait, that was awesome. I need two naps and like three nights of full sleep in order to recover from all the work that that was. And yet I'm thinking to myself, I want that to have been awesome. Like, I want that to have been the case. And when I think about the people that I really, you know, look up to as those who I want to walk like Jesus in the way that they do, I see the way that they live their life. And regardless of what the circumstance is, they live these lives that declare this walking with Jesus is awesome. And I think to myself, I want it to be that. And in the rhythms of their life, they have figured out what it is to rest in Jesus no matter what is going on. And their soul is deeply at peace because of that. And their soul is nourished by that all the time. That's the necessary thing. I want to kind of direct your attention to the first song we sang after the sermon there, the new one, The Goodness of Jesus. If you noticed, you may or may not have, it, the lyrics were positioned a little bit of a different way than what we typically sing. The lyrics were positioned as you actually singing to your heart. Come you weary heart, now to Jesus. Come you anxious soul, now and see. You were singing a prayer to yourself like rehearsing the truth of the gospel to yourself. And this is what the third verse said. You singing to yourself, come and find your hope now in Jesus. He is all he said he would be. Grace is overflowing from the Savior's heart. Rest here in his wondrous peace. And I, I wanna offer you the chorus of that almost as like a prayer or a benediction. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, brothers and sisters, he is all that you need. May it become what may that you rest all of your days in the goodness of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.